morning. My name is Marshall, the senior pastor here, teaching on the verses that uh, Kim just read. I, I'm going to start with my jacket on, but I know it's a little warm in here. It might come off. I was tempted to take it off in the pew, but I'll be official for a second here. So I do want to uh, make mention of what uh, Nick talked about, the congregational meeting after the service. It's for members and all who would like to stay. Um, we'll have several updates on staffing, on church officers, on the finance of the church, uh, the missions of the church, and also talk about our building. Uh, in that meeting, in a little more depth than I will right now, I will be calling the members of our church and everyone who would like to join us to join us in prayer every day, really, but especially this coming Tuesday from noon uh, until 1230. Every Tuesday from noon to 1230, I meet with a group of folks to pray for the church. It's one of the, my favorite times of the week. There's usually seven or eight of us. We meet back here uh, in the, the prayer room here in the, off the foyer. This week, we're going to meet uh, in here because our Zoom capabilities are better here. We'd like as many of you as possible to join us at noon on Tuesday in person, or if you'd like to, maybe during your lunch hour, you're downtown or wherever you are around the country or around the world, uh, to Zoom in to our prayer meeting. We're going to pray for a couple of things uh, particularly, and so I invite you to that time of prayer uh, every week, every day, but especially this Tuesday at noon. The, the Zoom link is in the uh, church email on Friday. It'll actually go out again uh, tomorrow. I'm also going to be calling the church, the members, all who are willing and able uh, to fast that morning, to prayer and fast uh, for several things I'll talk a little bit more about in the, uh, in the congregational meeting. But let me pray before we look at this, uh, this so important passage of God's Word. God, we come uh, to words uh, written 2,000 years ago uh, that several times throughout history have shaken uh, history and the historical process even. And we pray for those grand sweeping things. We pray for renewal in our community, in our country, in our world, uh, like Romans has often uh, accomplished according to your purpose and your grace. But more importantly than that, God, I pray that the gospel that is in Romans, the good news, the grace of God, will penetrate individual hearts for the first time, for the thousandth time. Lord, be with us for the gospel's sake. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you've been with us this fall, we've been in a series that I really enjoyed, Amazing Grace. The first part of it, which we concluded last week, was the life of Jacob. And what we said is that Jacob and his life was an illustration, an illustration of God's grace. Well, now we are in Amazing Grace Part 2, the book of Romans. And what I want to look at Romans is as the explanation of grace. Jacob was the illustration of grace. Romans is the explanation of grace. The illustration, now the explanation. Now, the book of Romans, it's hard to overstate the impact God has had used through this book in the history of the church. Uh, one of the great preachers, probably the great preacher of the first thousand years of the church, a man named John Chrysostom. Uh, you may have never heard of John Chrysostom, a great preacher around the 5th century. He had the book of Romans read to him every single week. But let me illustrate the impact of the book of Romans with four stories from the history of the church. In the year 386, a 32-year-old man named Augustine, who would go on to become the most prominent theologian, I would argue, in the history of the church. When he was 32 years old, he was weeping in a garden outside Milan with his good friend Alpius. He had lived a life of license, he had lived a life of privilege, he had lived a life of education, and he was persuaded almost to begin a new life, to follow Jesus, to become a Christian. 
but he lacked the final resolution to cross that line and say, yes, I put my trust in Jesus. So he's literally weeping in a garden. And on the other side of a wall, on the other side of a wall, the garden next door, as it were, he heard a child singing, take up and read, take up and read. And so somehow Augustine takes this as a message from God. So he goes to the table beside him where the book of Romans is there. And he just reads two verses from Romans chapter 13. And this is what he says when he read those verses. No further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence in Romans, a clear light flooded my heart. And all darkness of doubt vanished away. A little more than a thousand years later, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, in either the year 1513 or 1515, and the scholars say different things, Luther was pondering one of the Psalms, Psalm 31, that says, In your righteousness, deliver me, God. And Luther could not make sense. How could God's righteousness, which terrified him, made him so scared, how could God's righteousness be a means of delivering him? And as he was thinking about this, he began to study the verse, the last verse that Kim just read for us, Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17, and this is what he said when it says the righteousness of God is revealed. He said, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is the righteousness whereby through grace and mercy God justifies by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn. And to have gone through doors into paradise, the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, whereby I, before the righteousness of God, had filled me with hate. Now it became inexpressibly sweet. It was a gateway into heaven. That was Martin Luther in the year 1513 or 1515. In 1738, in May, May 24th, a man named John Wesley... Uh, who was actually kind of pastoring at the time, but had not had a heart experience, he went to a meeting on Aldersgate Street in London where a commentary by Luther on Romans was being read. And he says this, At a quarter to nine, at 8.45 p.m., I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I trusted Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. <laughs> You may know that John Wesley went on to found and lead uh, the great revivals, the great renewals, and was the founder of the Methodist denomination. And then a story you might not have heard before. Karl Barth was a Swiss theologian, and he had been trained in all of the greatest liberal German theology of the 19th century. That had claimed the goodness of humankind, the brotherhood of humankind, that dreamed of a utopia and of human progress. And Karl Barth had been trained in this. Uh, but that dream of utopia and human progress had been shattered by the carnage of World War I. And so as a pastor in a Swiss village, Karl Barth took up the book of Romans and he wrote a commentary on it. This is what he says. The reader will detect for himself that it has been written, this commentary on Romans, with a joyful sense of discovery. The mighty voice of Paul was new to me. And if to me, no doubt, to many others also. Now, you see, um, that commentary on Romans, he, he didn't understand the world was being ripped to shreds. He didn't understand it. But in reflecting and encountering Romans, his life was changed. I love the way he described it years later. He compared himself, Bart did, to a man grasping in the dark, grasping in the dark for a rope for guidance. And finding when he finds the rope and pulls on it, it is a bell rope 
that sounds to wake the dead. And so it is with Romans, a bell rope that calls the dead to life. Now it's worth asking, why has Romans, of all the books in the scripture, why has Romans had such an impact, so much influence? The reason is at some level simple. Romans is God's given key for us to understand all of the scripture and all that he has done. You see, from Romans, you can see the whole landscape of the Bible. From Romans, you can see how the parts relate to the whole. For our purposes, Romans is the most detailed explanation of God's grace. In fact, without Romans, we wouldn't understand, we wouldn't understand the life of Jacob, what God was doing with Jacob, and how he did it. Romans is the key to understanding the scriptures. So a little background on the book of Romans. It started off as a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had never visited and did not plant in the city of Rome. Now, Rome, it's hard for us to imagine how important Rome was in the ancient world and the ancient imagination. It was the center of the world. If you were to combine Washington, D.C., New York City, Boston, Hollywood, and Fort Bragg or the Pentagon, I mean, it was the center of government. The commercial life, the intellectual life, the entertainment life, and the military life of the whole ancient world. The old phrase, all roads lead to Rome, that was actually literally true. All the roads were built to come back to Rome, but it was also figuratively true, an apt metaphor. All roads lead to Rome. And so there's a church there. It's possible that the good news of Jesus had reached Rome within a few months after Jesus' crucifixion. We know from Acts chapter 2 that there were people from Rome at Pentecost just 50 days after Jesus had, uh, had died and risen, from he- uh, risen to heaven. And so they may have uh, taken that message back. Um, there's, there's old citations from the emperors in the, in the 40s regarding the church at Rome. The church was comprised of both Jews and non-Jews, what the scriptures often call either Greeks or Gentiles. So that's Rome. As for the author, Paul, we've talked about him before. Paul had been a very rigorous and strict Jew, actually persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. He'd had this massive encounter with Jesus. And out of that encounter with Jesus, Paul had been commissioned, this, interestingly, as a strict Jew, to be the one who would take the gospel to the non-Jews, to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. I love what he did. I'm not going to talk about this, but I love how he looked with me at verse 1. He calls himself a servant It'd actually be better to translate that slave. He's a slave of Jesus Christ, but also an apostle. An apostle is someone who had seen and experienced the resurrected Christ and been commissioned by him to take the message forth. So he is both a servant, a slave, the humility of a slave, with the authority of an apostle sent by Jesus himself. Paul is writing from southern Greece, a town called Corinth, And he's expressing his interest, we heard about it in some of those verses, uh, of visiting Rome. And actually the interesting thing is he wants to visit Rome not because he wants to plant a church there. There's already a church. He wants the Romans and their resources to be the means by which he is sent further west. He's coming from the east. If you could imagine, you know, the boot in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He's coming from over here in the east. I'm trying to do it your way. Uh, And then he's trying to move further west to Spain. He wants to take the gospel to Spain where it has never been preached. And he wants to use Rome as his launching point. Now, here's what's interesting about the letter. Because Paul does not 
personally know the church at Rome. He doesn't know what's really going on in the church. He, hasn't, he does not have a pastoral concern. Uh, and so he's able to write more broadly. Like when he writes to the Galatians, uh, a book we studied a couple of years ago, when he writes to the Galatians, he knows what's going on. And it's legalism. It's self-righteousness. And so he writes about that. When he writes to the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth was not struggling with legalism. They were struggling with immorality. And so he addresses immorality. But he has neither of these concerns directly in the book of Romans. It's, it's, so, it's, a, it's a clear and extensive, it's actually his longest letter, exposition of the gospel that he preaches. Okay, He doesn't know the church intimately, so he can kind of talk more broadly. Right? The letter is it's, it's so comprehensive. It's amazing. Let me just name some of the themes he deals with. Sin, law, judgment, human destiny, faith, works, Grace, justification, sanctification, election, the plan of salvation, the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit, the Christian hope, the nature and life of the church, the place of the Jews and the Gentiles and the purpose of God, the meaning of the Old Testament, the duties of Christians as citizens, and the principles of godliness. He touches on all of that and then makes it somehow weave together. It is brilliant. The two overarching themes of the book of Romans are the unity and the equality of God's people, that Jew and Gentile are not distinct, they are one in Christ, and that the justification of guilty sinners through faith, which is to say this is a book about grace, and it's held together by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Okay, that's a lot. Let me give you a couple of metaphors to help uh, hopefully understand and experience this. You see, understanding Romans... Understanding Romans is like learning to build a diesel engine. I have no idea how to do that. So if, if this illustration falls apart, you can tell me afterwards. But I would imagine, and I've been told, that one of the best ways to learn to build a diesel engine is to take a, if you have no instructions, is to take a fully formed diesel engine, to take it apart, to take it apart, making sure to note how all the pieces work and how they fit together, and then to reassemble the engine. Okay, in our case, the book of Romans is fully formed. And so we must go in and kind of take it apart piece by piece, seeing how the pieces fit together. Which means that both for you and for me as the preacher, Romans requires, will require some work. Okay? You know, Jacob is these great stories, and we can kind of paint these pictures, and, and that's lovely and true. But Romans is going to require some work for us. William Tyndall the English reformer said this, above all things when it comes to Paul and Romans, we must know what he means, what Paul means by words like law, sin, grace, faith, righteousness, and he goes on. Or else if you don't understand those things, he says, no matter how often you read over it, you will lose your labor, you'll lose your work, okay? So it takes some work. So for this reason, I've never done this before here, eight years here, never done this. I'm going to encourage you to read Romans uh, along with me over and over again this fall. If you look on page seven of your bulletin, I've put a reading plan. It's going to be a little bit different, a little bit the same every week. In fact, if you listen to Kim read uh, this morning, you're done for the day, okay? Uh, she read verse 17 verse. That's all you got to read. Some of these readings will take you literally less than a minute. A couple of them uh, later in the fall will take you a little bit longer. Uh, I'm not asking you to be John Chrysostom and read through it every week, uh, but to just work through it. To work through it, I will be reading alongside you. It's going to take a little work. But Romans is not just designed to be understood. Romans is designed to be experienced. So in that sense, it's not just like an engine. Romans is like a hot pepper. 
Uh, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you know this. Uh, but there's like this race to create the world's hottest pepper. Uh, do you know this? Okay. And there's, there's actually an index. It's called the Scoville Heating Units. And how, you know, some of these peppers, they like, they combine these strands. There's something called the Ghost Pepper. Uh, there's something called the Carolina Reaper. Uh, they're trying to create the hottest pepper possible. But what is it about a pepper? Because you look at a pepper, a hot pepper, and it's cool on the outside, right? And it's soothing. It looks soothing. But you bite into it, and there's fire. And there's fire. If you really, by God's grace and by faith, bite into Romans, it will set your life on fire. Set your life on fire. I love what the commentator, commentaries are usually boring and they don't say things like this, but F.F. Bruce has this to say about Romans. There's no saying what happens when people begin to really study Romans. Augustine, Luther, Wesley, Bart, they launch great spiritual movements that have left their mark. But similar things have happened much more frequently to very ordinary men and women as the words of this letter of Romans come home to them with power. I love this, this is the best sentence I've ever read in a commentary. So let those who have read thus far be prepared in consequences of reading further. You have been warned. You have been warned. This just might set your life on fire. So today, in the time we have left, I want to look at verses primarily 14 to 17. Verses 14 to 17, they contain the major themes of the entire book. They are like an overture to a symphony. They are like the refrain to a great pop song. One commentator said these verses are like the text of Romans and the rest of the book is simply an exposition of these few verses. And what I want to do is to take them apart, take the pieces of the engine apart and consider four pieces. I'm going to keep my eye on the time. First, gospel, I'll give you the four pieces. Gospel, salvation, righteousness of God, and faith. First, the gospel. Now, if you read all 17 verses, you see the word gospel occurs four times, especially note verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What does gospel mean? Gospel means simply, in ancient sources, it means good news. Good news. But it's not just any kind of news that you like reading the paper on your phone. This is good news that changes the world, okay? And it demands a response, okay? In ancient sources, the word, it's euangelion, good news, gospel, is often used to announce the birth of an emperor or an emperor's child, which is to say that news that changes things, right? It signifies a new world order, and it demands response. It demands allegiance. Paul lays out this gospel in the first six verses. I'm going to go real quick. If you're taking notes, you're going to have to write quick, or you can go back and read it. It's real plain, okay? Verse 1, the good news is of God. Verse 2, the good news is according to the scriptures, Verse 3, the good news is about Jesus. And then verse 5, three things about the good news or the gospel. First, it is for the nations. It's for all peoples. Secondly, the good news is unto obedience, which is to say the gospel changes your life. It doesn't leave you. The gospel is a come-as-you-are party, but it's not a stay-as-you-are party. The good news of God will change you. It leads to obedience. But maybe last and most importantly, all also in verse 5, the good news is for the sake of the name of Jesus, for the sake of the name of Jesus, okay? The good news of God. Yeah? Yeah? Good news? We're kind of like, eh, you know. You're not doing very good, Marshall. Well, listen. 
You know, in teaching on Romans, uh, Paige Brown, who's actually my sister-in-law, uh, she asked, she said, what would be good news today? What would be good news today? Russia withdraw, announces that they have totally withdrawn from Ukraine. That'd be good news. What if I were to sit up here today and announce to you that I can give you a pill that will cure cancer? One pill, silver bullet. What if I, could, you know, what if I told you carbs are good for you? What if I told you the Bears will win the Super Bowl this year? Put all your money on it. Now, if I announced it, what would happen? You'd pull out your phone. Some of you would run to the doors. Have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? You'd post it. It's worth asking, why don't we do this with this good news, the good news of God about Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world? Well, Paul did. You see, Paul had bit into the pepper. <laughs> he bit into the pepper, and his life was set aflame. And listen, I want you to listen with me as he tells us three things about himself and his relationship with the gospel. First, verse 14. He says, I am under obligation. I am indebted to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I am obligated. I'm under debt. He's saying he's indebted. But he's writing to people he's never met. How can he be indebted to people he's never even met? Well, there's two types of debt. One is you loan me $1,000, and I'm indebted to you for $1,000, right? But there's a second kind of debt. That is, imagine that Nick gives me $1,000 and tells me to give it to you. I am in your debt to pass the gift along. This debt is the second sense in which Paul is indebted. He has received something, and he is obligated. He is indebted to pass it along. But he's not bitter about this debt. Look with me at verse 15. He doesn't say just, I'm under obligation, I'm in debt. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He cannot wait. He knows that it is not good news unless and until you share it. It's not good news unless and until you pass it on. And he is eager to share it. But then he says something a bit odd. Verse 16. He says, I'm indebted. I'm eager, but then verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, that's an odd thing to say. Now, as one preacher said, James Stewart of Edinburgh, he said this. If he would not highlight that he was, quote, not ashamed or not offended unless he had not felt some temptation to be ashamed, to be offended by the gospel. And you feel that. I feel that. We're tempted to be ashamed. The word ashamed could also be translated offended. I'm not offended by the gospel. Now, how is the gospel potentially offensive or shame-inducing? It actually is offensive and shame-inducing. First, the good news of Jesus is free and it's undeserved. And if you really think about that, that's insulting. It's insulting to you and to me. It's saying the only way to be right with God and to be enough in this world is to be right with the living God by a pure gift. No matter how nice you are, it's not enough. No matter how good you are, it's not enough. No matter how many, how many religious duties you perform, it's not enough. There is no earning. There is no deserving. In a world full of strivers, that's insulting. It's a shameful. But also, in our modern world especially, where self-expression is like the new cult, we're free to be me, free to be me. The gospel says that Jesus had to die for you to give you an identity. That your only identity is found in Jesus' death for you. That's deeply offensive. There is no road back to you. 
except through the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death for you. He gives you an identity. It's deeply offensive to our modern world. And then there's this. Jesus had to suffer and die for you. The gospel is a bloody, dirty cross where Jesus was naked. It's deeply shameful. And it go, the innocent for the guilty. It offends our sense of justice and rightness. And it also suggests that if that's how Jesus went, we as his followers must follow that. And it challenges our lives of safety and comfort. We will suffer to follow Jesus. You see, to understand the gospel, to get it, you must understand the cross and how deeply offensive it was and is. He's writing to the church at Rome. And the whole principle of Rome is establishing an order so that the good life is possible. So everything about it, the military, the imperial system, the roads, everything is designed to maintain order so that you can have a good life. And if you violate that order, the punishment was crucifixion. It was a very public way of saying this is what happens to enemies of the Roman order. Now crucifixion was obviously very painful. But what we don't think about sometimes is just how public it was. Hanging naked, dying, bleeding in front of your peers. I've quoted Fleming Rutledge before. It's worth quoting again. Crucifixion was a form of advertisement, a public service announcement from the Romans. This person is scum of the earth, not fit to live. More an insect than a human being. Death on a cross, shameful, scandalous, offensive. And yet Paul says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. And why? For it is the power of God for salvation. Now, if you're writing, if you're taking notes, I want you to circle every time you see the word for or therefore, I want you to circle it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And so what is salvation? If the gospel is this good news that demands a response, what is salvation? I'll be a little bit more brief here because in a word, we're going to talk about this every day, every Sunday. Salvation is everything. Salvation is everything that happened to Christ and is for us. Salvation, yes, as you've commonly heard it, it is the forgiveness of sins. It is the opportunity to go to heaven. Salvation is that. But it is so much more and greater. Salvation is a new community. It's being connected to brothers and sisters. It's adoption into God's own family. Salvation one day means that there will be no more evil, no more suffering, no more sin, no more pain, no more loneliness, the end of war and plague. Everything sad will become untrue. That's what salvation means. You see, salvation is the promise that one day there will be no more addictions. There will be no more loneliness. There will be no more abuse. There will be people cutting themselves to relieve their pain. There will be no more tough marriages or estranged children one day. And salvation gives us resources to find hope in the midst of those things today. That is what salvation, salvation is everything. But there's also this about salvation. Salvation says you're enough. You're, you're enough. Because of what Christ has done for you, you are enough. You know, we live in a striving culture. We're always trying to work hard, whether it's working out or making money or you know, getting into the right college, whatever, make a resume. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is saying you are enough. You can rest. And you're like, well, that's nice. I'd like to feel that way. 
How am I enough? And this brings us to the genius of the Apostle Paul, the master stroke of God, the third point, the righteousness of God. Or if you're taking notes, the righteousness from God. Which might be better said, not just the righteousness, the enoughness from God, the enoughness of God. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now there's tons of gallons of ink that have been sent on the phrase, the righteousness of God. And there are three aspects of righteousness of God. And you need to understand all three of them, frankly. First, the righteousness of God is an attribute of God. He's a righteous dude. That's what it means. He, he has the character of righteousness. But secondly, righteousness is an activity. It is something he does. He does right things. He does just things. So it's an attribute and an activity. But primarily here, the third thing is this is a gift. It is the righteousness from God to you and to me. It is the enoughness of God, what Jesus has accomplished by being enough, by being righteous, that is given to you. This is a gift. The righteousness, as the NIV translate, righteousness from God. Jesus has achieved something that is righteous in God's sight. And Christianity is that you get that. Righteousness from God. You are enough. Because of what he has done and achieved for you. And it's not just that your sins are forgiven. That God looks at you and he sees enoughness. He seems righteousness. You know, it seems like about every 12th movie. I'm just making that number up. But there's, when there's a prison movie, there's always the scene where the person who's had a debt to society and they get out of prison. You know, they, you know, they always like drop them off. It's always in this, you know, they, they must film everything in Las Vegas, right? It's in the desert and the, he's got one bag, you know, he's got a watch he puts on. He puts his, you know, his $12 back in his pocket and he just waits for a bus to pick him up. That's how we think salvation is. We just got, we, we got, we got out of debt. We're, we've paid our debt to society, we're out. But here is what the righteousness from God is saying. You have been released from prison, and you have immediately walked into Sweden into the Nobel Peace Prize Award. Now, let's lay the politics aside. The Nobel Peace Prize is basically, you know, it's like human of the year. Like, you were the best human last year, okay? That's what the Nobel Peace Prize is. You were the best person on our planet last year. We're going to invite you to Sweden and give you this prize. The Nobel Prize for, Nobel prize for Peace. It's like going from prison where you have a debt to society, immediately getting that weird little gold medal they put around their neck for best human on the planet. That is what righteousness from God is. And here's the deal. It's every day. Every day you are being put in that again and again and again. Righteousness from God for you. You see, I think Luther is the best way to understand this. You see, Luther was terrified by this idea of God's righteousness. He hated this idea of God's righteousness. How can I ever be enough? I mean, Luther, he said, I was the best monk of all time. I was the most religiously faithful monk of all time. How could I ever do enough? Until he realized that righteousness from God was a gift. And all he had to do was receive it. Which brings us to the fourth point. Faith. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Anybody ever say uh, faith save? Faith does not save. Faith does not save you. Righteousness of God graciously given, that is what saves you. 
Faith is how you receive it, okay? The best illustration I can give you this morning is it's a little bit like what connects, an, uh, the, what connects these light bulbs to the electric source. A switch. You flip the switch and the, and, the, and the electricity passes through and the light lights up. Faith is the light switch that we flip on and we receive the goodness. We receive the electricity, right? You, salvation is unmerited, but it's not universally enjoyed. Faith is required. We have to believe. We don't do anything. We don't earn anything by our faith. So what is faith? Faith is an open hand to receive the righteousness from God. Have you received it? Have you received for the first time or the 10,000th time? Because what is the effect of receiving the righteousness of God, whether it's for the first time or for the 10,000th time? See, if you receive the righteousness of God, you can, like Karl Barth, look at a world that's being ripped up and ripping itself up. You can look at a world that's ripping itself up. Anybody feel me? Can I get an amen? You can look at a world that's ripping itself up and find a joyous sense of discovery. You can be like Augustine, feeling the clear light of the gospel flooding your souls and dispelling the darkness. You can, by faith, be like John Wesley who found his heart strangely warmed and saying, me, even me, is accepted by God. And you can be like Martin Luther and break into the freedom, the release of the gospel, what the gospel brings. Because Luther started to understand this, the world was changed. We wouldn't be sitting here if the book of Romans had not impacted Rome, uh, Martin Luther. He was so brave and courageous because he understood this. Righteousness from God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. From faith to faith, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. For as it is written, the just, the righteous, will live by faith. Pray with me. Great God, this is a book that has set the world on fire multiple times. I pray that it would set the world. I pray that it would set our community, the North Shore, on fire. I pray that it would set our country on fire again. But most importantly, by your grace, God, I pray that it would set men and women, boys and girls, within the sound of my voice right now, and it would set their heart on fire. For Christ's sake, I pray. Amen.